Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded February 10th, 2022, titled, Bible Chain of Custody is Still Broken. J. Warner Wallace, Person of Interest, Response. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Unlike some of the apologists out there who are willing to address skeptical respondents by name. Now, Apologia is right. Uh, friendly as to what Paul Lagia is saying here. I seem to understand um, Apologia's view of... Alison's point contradicts Apologia's hypothesis. A YouTuber by the name of Paul Enns, I think his name is. Paul Lagia explains this. He's going to... He's going to get it wrong. Former cold case detective J. Warner Wallace prefers to keep the names of his challengers off his lips and his audience safe from any bad influence. Uh, and I saw that there was a uh, an atheist who has a channel also on YouTube who is now taking my videos one at a time and, and basically trying to deconstruct every video. And that has become the content on his YouTube channel. Okay. Now, I don't know for sure that he was talking about me. Godless Engineer also has a number of responses to Wallace, but this clip from mid-2020 came out shortly after a flurry of me going through his catalog as described. I think it was me. I don't typically engage those folks, but I do learn from those folks, and then I try my best to do a little better the next time. Well, I think Detective Wallace has added another chapter to his don't engage those folks but try to do better next time efforts. A few months ago, Jim's latest book dropped. It's called Person of Interest, and he hit the Apologist podcast circuit hard to promote it. The premise is that if all the New Testaments disappeared, the culture would still know a lot about the Jesus story. Naturally, I put out a video expressing the weaknesses in the book's approach and conclusions. Now, while I couldn't prove it in a court of law, I suspect that Wallace's most recent appearance on Frank Turek's Cross-Examined podcast was his reply to my reply. I want you to tell us what you think the best objection you've seen to person of interest has been, if you think there are any good ones, because there's been some people nitpicking at it. But has anybody really, really launched something at the book that you go, man, yeah, I, I should have done that better. Some people nitpicking. I'm pointing out gaping holes. Out of curiosity... I went searching for any negative reviews of the book to see who else Frank and Jim might be talking about. There's this detailed, chapter-by-chapter, -chapter, scathing one-star review on Amazon, written by a Christian reader who concludes, Frankly, after reading books like this, I just wish most apologists would stop, because factually inaccurate hyperbole really only hurts the credibility of Christianity in the long run. Other Christians wrote on Amazon, if you recommend this book to anyone who's skeptical of Christianity, this book will likely confirm the negative beliefs they have about Christians being biased and anti-intellectual. And if you're looking for independent evidence for Jesus outside the Bible, this is not the book you're looking for. I didn't find this book to be worth my time. With friendly fire like this from Wallace's own camp, 
It's no wonder that at the time of this recording, no prominent skeptical blogger, podcaster, or YouTuber has even bothered to try to launch an attack on the book other than myself. But here's the smoking gun. Embedded within my video on the Person of Interest book is a 20-minute recreation of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope that I time-consumingly, painstakingly compiled from hundreds of non-Star Wars sources in order to make the analogy that anything sufficiently culturally relevant can eventually be assembled without directly referencing the source material. Jim can't have been happy when this recreation caught the attention of media outside the religious debate sphere. The name of the video was Jesus vs. Star Wars, J. Warner Wallace Person of Interest Response. So while it's not conclusive that Frank and Jim are talking about me, when they go through my exact talking points one by one, the detective may have shown his cards in the podcast in the heat of the moment. Give me an example of anyone who even approximates or comes near the kind of influence. And as a matter of fact, you won't find anybody. <laughs> is, it, is it Darth mm -hmm. Vader? Is it, is it Luke Skywalker? Do you think these folks have established a worldview that a thousand years from now will find that all of our major categories of, of civilization, art, music, literature, education, science, even other world religions will now bend their knee to Luke Skywalker? With thousands of years of literature and pop culture to draw from, kind of odd to immediately jump specifically to Star Wars characters if you're not talking about my Star Wars critique. Or it could just be a coincidence. If it was me or wasn't me, doesn't really matter to the points we'll look at today. But as you listen along, I leave the verdict up to you, jury of viewers. Here we go. And he's been on this program several times. It's the great Jay Warner Wallace, Detective Wallace. You know, uh, Jim has been on the program recently because his phenomenal new book, Person of Interest, is really making an impact out there. In fact, it's uh, making an impact like Jesus has made an impact in the sense that Jesus is the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. And that's what person of interest does beautifully. Jim points out how Jesus has impacted literature and movies more than any other, art, music, education, science, and even other world religions. That's what Jesus has done in an unprecedented way uh, of all time, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the most impactful human being to ever walk the earth. Check out my first video for more detailed breakdowns of these things. But fortunately, Frank is going to summarize it for me. The only thing I could say how this could happen if Jesus didn't rise from the dead is if somehow the New Testament documents actually put forth a myth somehow, or they were changed in the first three centuries of the church. So that's what we're going to investigate today with my friend Jim Wallace. Jim, how are you? That's right. In all his word count and podcast circuit bluster, the detective has yet to put forth any reason why the cultural impact of Jesus requires the stories about him to be true. The impact is equally explainable by people mistakenly believing the stories about Jesus. Because the main objection in my mind would be, oh, sure, Jesus is the most influential human being in history because people think he rose from the dead, but he really didn't. Here's what I would say to that. Um, if, you can if you think that there is another fictional character that could have this level of influence, if that's the claim, then you hold the burden. Mm. Okay, who would that be? What, what fictional mm -hmm. character? Give me an example of anyone 
who even approximate or comes near the kind of influence. That's not the claim. I didn't say another fictional character has had Jesus-level influence, which seems to be the evidence Jim is asking for here. No, the claim is merely that fictional characters can be influential. Uncle Sam, Atticus Finch, Santa Claus, Barbie, Robin Hood, Sherlock Holmes, Hamlet, Vito Corleone, Big Brother, Batman, Ebenezer Scrooge, Cinderella, Odysseus, Paul Bunyan, Tom Sawyer, all had and have cultural influence. There is some doubt as to whether authors like Socrates or Shakespeare were real historical figures that accomplished all that is attributed to them. So maybe fictional influence can count for them as well. Or what of all the gods out there that the detective would reject as fictional? Thor, Zeus, Hercules, Ganesh, Vishnu, Shiva, Allah, and so on. If a category of things can have some influence, it holds that items in the category could have more influence. Maybe even a lot of influence. And it's trivially true that one in the category would have the most influence. That doesn't mean that the said leader is no longer part of the category. If Jim wants to let us know what mechanism limits the influence of a fictional character, then I'd once again invite him to present it. Where exactly is this demarcation line that Jesus crossed from plausibly fictional to implausibly fictional? If you had to ask the question, which of these three things could best account for the world we see today and the kind of influence that we see today, Jesus is a fictional character, or Jesus is another average guy in the first century, or Jesus is the creator of all things and enters into his creation and then it causes this huge ripple effect. It seems to me that of those three options, option three is the most reasonable inference. What makes it the most reasonable inference? Who was the most influential human prior to the explosion of Christianity? Is it reasonable to assume that that person was also a god? How far down the list of influence must be gods? Or is it always just the first one? And of course, that would assume that there's a creator of the universe in the first place. That would need to be shown to be reasonable first, before this argument even has a start. I said there have been people that have tried to take some shots at person of interest. Has anybody really come out? Have any atheists come out and said, hey, you blew this, this is wrong? As far as this yeah. book goes, I think it does what we intended it to do. Now, here's the problem. Does, do people in the apologetics world, look, we, we make cases. And if you look at my subtitles on my books, they all pretty much say that, right? A homicide detective makes the case for X. That is not our subtitle here. This is a different kind of book. The subtitle here is Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. That's a different kind of claim. So, mm -hmm. so you could argue, and I've seen people say it, this is, this is not the way I would argue for Christianity. Well, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. This isn't a Christianity is true book. It's a Christianity is popular book. It's okay to congratulate yourself on being popular if you want to, but that's not an apologetic. It's not part of a case for Christianity being true. The trouble is, Jim, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. You opened up the podcast telling us that some levels of popularity require accurate history, that some levels of popularity are best explained by divine intervention. Pick a lane, detective. We do this in every nobody murder case. So I give you an example of a nobody murder case, and then we turn the corner toward Jesus. See, Jim, you can't write your book actively attempting to draw parallels between Christian popularity and a nobody missing person murder case. And then when people point out that the analogy simply doesn't work on any level, indignantly pretend you didn't intend to make it an analogy in the first place.
You obviously did. You think this argument from popularity is a valid one, and you're hoping some in your audience will fall for it. And then when I debrief this jury, and I'll say to them, well, but what'd you think? They'll say, well, we thought he was guilty, but that was a good case. That's why we convicted him. But I sure wish I had an eyewitness. Well, it turns out we have eyewitnesses. That's what we're talking about in cold case Christianity, right? I'm not going to write cold case again. I've already written that book. This is right. the companion sure. case. Not a particularly helpful companion, mind you. Kind of the Jar Jar Binks of Christian claims. And mm. the question is, if when you write a book that says, here's a book that makes a case for what they think they already believe sufficiently and don't need the case, that I can't even get the church interested in developing a reasonable, evidential, defendable version of Christianity. But this kind of book, I think, brings people in in a way that uh, I'm trying to be creative. I see. So rather than answer Frank's questions about how well the book stands up to atheist objections, Jim is instead going to pat himself on the back for appealing to apathetic Christians who already agree with him. All right, move on. Nothing to see here. Please disperse. All my books are simply gateway books. I don't, I don't, I stand on the sh on the shoulders of people who really know something. Okay, I'm just a cold case mm -hmm. detective. I'm trying to assemble the evidence. It's kind of the same way that Lee Strobel would say the same thing. I think he probably would, because you're the same person. What I'm trying to do is to enter to engage a, an audience of the church that will then look seriously at the evidence. And of course, in the end, it's going to come down to the the New Testament. Why do we think that anything cited by anyone in history in any of these disciplines? is actually true. And that's gonna come down to making a case for the reliability of the scriptures. Exactly, Jim. Because you recognize that your new book has value only to pander to current believers, you're willing to ignore the objections of believers and non-believers alike. As I said at the top of the program, some people might try and say, yeah, okay, you're right, Jim. It's, it, I can't deny it. Jesus has had an unparalleled impact uh, on our culture in so many ways. The only way I can explain it is people thought he had risen from the dead, but he really didn't. But once that lie blossomed, it, Jesus just took off. He was a real person, but he wasn't God. He didn't rise from the dead. It, it, he just took off. Wow. I didn't expect Frank to keep the conversation on topic and hold Jim to the fire here. Thanks, Frank. And yes, that's exactly what I say. Mistaken believers and correct believers produce identical popularity phenomena. Nothing about Jim's observations require that the believers actually be correct. It works the same if they just believe they're correct. Now, you have something in cold case Christianity that I, that I think is brilliant to deal with this issue. It's something you take from your cold case world, and it's called the chain of custody. Can you explain what that is? Wallace is about to summarize his gospel chain of custody claims at a very superficial level of detail, which is probably appropriate for a quick question in a time-constrained podcast. I'll match his detail level here. But my video, Why We Know the Story of Jesus Isn't a Legend, has Wallace's full, detailed chain of custody argument, and I examine all the relevant historical passages for your consideration. And how do we know that what we have by 363, 364, how do we know that what we have by that time has not been so utterly corrupted? Personally, I'm not arguing that the written texts were changed in any major way after they were penned. I want to know what happened to the stories in the decades before they were written down. 
how we address this in criminal trials is we simply ask, well, who's touched this evidence over the years? So your, your CSI at the scene is going to take pictures, write a report, collect the evidence. It's going to be described a certain way. The person that picks it up at a property to deliver it to the crime lab is going to make a report. If he passes it on to a detective, he's going to take his own. And if we can show that the, the images and the reports in the beginning match the ones at the end, then you know how things changed over the t- entire chain. Well, there, it turns out to be a New Testament chain of custody. Except we don't have the first few decades of Christianity. So in Jim's analogy, we have evidence in the crime lab that has remained well-preserved, but no record of all of how it got from the scene to the crime lab. That first link in the custody chain is the most important and the one we don't have for the Gospels. So the claim has been made by many skeptics that we don't have the autographs, the original copies of these Gospels. How do we know that those Gospels were what we have today? Because the argument's going to be, yeah, that story of Jesus got changed. And by the time it gets into the Council, it's really been changed. Given that we know of undisputed manuscript changes, just see the footnotes in your own Bible, it is a reasonable thing to wonder if there are changes we don't know about. But for the sake of discussion, I'm willing to grant the good detective that the New Testament texts we have now are identical to the originals. That doesn't help us one bit in determining what happened to the stories in the decades before they were written down. Well, what we do is we actually start to look and ask the question, well, okay, if it's being transmitted, for example, orally, or it's being transmitted at a period in history where we no longer have that document, who is it being given to? Who is it being taught to? So John, for example, has personal students. No, he didn't. At least not any that we have the writings of. Now, people are going to argue about, well, are you sure this is a personal student? If Jim is positing an evidential chain of custody, that's a pretty good question, don't you think? Are you sure this was a personal student? Or are you just asserting it with insufficient evidence? Well, every early <laughs> Christian historic, historic record identifies these men as the students of John. Wow. That's not remotely true. So I get it. If, you, if, if you're going to start to nitpick out... I am. I'm going to nitpick your case and your witnesses, just like any good defense lawyer would. One of the challenges we have is that this is either such a vast conspiracy that it covers 300 years and several generations of people in different regions of the empire who are all cleverly saying the same thing, and they're all lying. That's a non sequitur. Churches believing in something for hundreds of years over a geographical area doesn't require a conspiracy. It doesn't require lying. It just requires someone to be wrong and then to teach that wrong thing and repeat and repeat, particularly when we know that Jerusalem and then Rome acted as centralized authorities, often overriding regional variations. Okay. Look, I always say it this way. If That's you've ridiculous. Got, yeah, if you've got yeah. an objection, you say, isn't it yeah. possible, Jim, that this vast multi-generational, mm-hmm. multi-geographic conspiracy... At some point in the second century, the church began to believe that certain of its members personally knew the apostles. They can believe it without lying. And future generations can sincerely believe what they were taught without lying. This conspiracy charge is irrelevant, desperate, and a feeble distraction. Jim is positing a chain of custody, and that requires an actual demonstration of each link in the chain. Not incredulity when I simply don't take centuries later tradition at its word. Is that possible, Jim? I'm always going to say yes, because anything and everything is possible, but it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to posit that second century traditions about first century events could be mistaken? Really, detective? 
all traditions of indeterminate origins are just automatically correct in your world? At least I can say it's possible. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Okay. Hey, Frank made his own Star Wars reference. I find your lack of faith disturbing. But in doing so, he's actually betrayed the problem here. Frank and Jim have faith in second century church traditions. I do not. And this isn't blind skepticism. The early documents don't affirm the later traditions, something that Frank and Jim never acknowledge nor address. Yet he calls me nitpicking. So here's what we know. The history of the church tells us that the first students of John, for example, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Fabius. So these folks Uh are sitting at the feet of John. Well, no. It's not church history that tells us this. It's church tradition. That Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias were students of John is now a new claim to be examined on its own merits. But Jim wants to hand wave away any doubts of this claim as merely a conspiracy theory. Is this really the kind of fact-checking, cross-examining rigor with which he operated in criminal cases? I'm sorry, but if I'm supposed to believe the Bible because of student-teacher lineage, and I'm supposed to believe student-teacher lineage because of unverified centuries-later church tradition, then what you're doing is just asking me to believe the Bible because of church tradition. How does Jim not see that? And what's great about that is we have some of the written material from Ignatius and and Polycarp, at least. We have seven letters from Ignatius, and we have one from Polycarp. And guess what? In none of these letters from Ignatius does he express that he was a student of John. In the letter from Polycarp, he does not tell us that he was a student of John. I acknowledge that to point out that the alleged students of the OG disciples, never actually identifying themselves as students of the OG disciples, is a form of argument from silence, but it's a pretty big glaring omission. From 1999 to 2006, I worked for Star Wars creator George Lucas. If today I were to write a book about my views on Star Wars, and in that book never once referenced my time at Lucasfilm, that would be odd right? It's reasonable for me to doubt that Ignatius and Polycarp were students of John when neither of them personally make this claim at perfectly opportune moments. If we just look at what um, Ignatius and what Polycarp wrote, we can get a view of the Jesus that they were taught by the eyewitness named John. We can get a view of the Jesus they were taught, sure, But until I have something more substantive than later tradition to make me think they were taught by John, I'm very reasonable in assuming that Ignatius and Polycarp's views came instead from the already written Gospels, like everyone else. These church fathers themselves do not claim otherwise. Now, it turns out when you read Ignatius and you read Polycarp, and they're learning this from John, that, that, that they affirm the early in history, they affirm the exact same view of Jesus that John held. The detective wants us to be impressed that Christian letters written between 110 and 140 AD are broadly consistent with a widely circulated gospel written decades earlier than that, without firmly establishing that student-disciple connection. This is no more useful to a chain of custody claim than Jim's Cold Case Christianity book being broadly consistent with the Gospel of John. This is far beyond a nitpick. You can get a much longer trail through on Paul's writings, because Paul had two students named uh, Linus, or named, uh, uh, well, first Clement. Clement of Rome is, uh, he mentions mm-hmm. Clement in his letters. Paul mentions someone named Clement in Philippians 4.3. The notion that this is the same Clement is again merely a church tradition, 
from centuries later. And Clement is uh, writes a letter called First Clement. A letter in which Clement does not link himself to the Apostle Paul. What is the description that Clement offers, yeah. Clement of Rome, based on what Paul taught? It's about 95 AD. Yeah, it's yeah, very so early. Well, here's the problem. Paul wasn't a witness to the life and death of Jesus. So we could even grant that Clement was a student of Paul. And Wallace's chain of custody is no more complete. So here's here's the whole problem for for people who argue that Jesus somehow is um, exaggerated over time. Well, it turns out that the earliest descriptions of the first generation of believers who are not eyewitnesses, they're the students of the eyewitnesses, affirms the kind of Jesus we know today. Sorry, Jim. Without actually connecting the dots to establish the eyewitness link you're asserting, these men are merely affirming what was already written down. And I'm asking about what was said about Jesus before it was written down. Um, and people will say this to me all the time as a complaint. Well, well, look, Jim, how do you know, though, that that's a good document from, from Ignatius? That that's not been corrupted mm. also? Because there are longer versions of Ignatius's letters. A reasonable question, I suppose. But again, that's a distraction. Since nothing in those letters established the student-to-teacher relationships nor anything to corroborate that wasn't already recorded in the Gospels. So so you could right. never, this is what is preventing people, I think a lot of people, from dating these Gospels as early as I believe they were written, because they have a, an anti-supernatural bias that prevents you know, them from I, I looking at miracles. No, most of the scholars who weigh in on the dating of the Gospels do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's okay if you want to take a fringe position on this. But it's not okay to pretend that only non-believers disagree with you. Pretty much everyone disagrees with you. What happened to that academic humility you expressed earlier? I stand on the, sh- on the shoulders of people who really know something, okay? I'm just a cold case mm-hmm. detective. If yeah. it's early, then you can't say that this is mythology in any way. It's too early. Just like Wallace will fail to define or quantify what level of popularity is too popular to be natural... He will also fail to define or quantify exactly what length of time is too short for people to be mistaken. In modern times, people can be wrong or mistaken almost instantly. I'm still waiting for him to demonstrate that the speed of error was somehow slower in the past. Paul actually quotes Luke, and that would require Luke to have written his gospel before Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And we know Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 55 or 56 AD. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Luke? What is Luke written? Well, this is why I think that you've got to put Luke prior to these, well, prior to the, to the mid-50s, because he's quoting yeah. the church in Corinth, right? And he's talking about the Lord's Supper. For clarity, Wallace is referring to Paul's descriptions of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. We'll come back to this. And he's quoting it to Timothy in 1 Timothy when he's talking about what is considered Scripture. And this is the 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 passage. The author first quotes Deuteronomy 25-4 from the Old Testament, and then, apparently, New Testament Luke 10-7, calling both Scripture. Now, people will argue, well, he's, he's quoting an oral tradition. Yes. They argue that in 1 Corinthians he's quoting an oral tradition. Really? Mm -hmm. He calls it scripture, and he puts it alongside Deuteronomy. Not in 1 Corinthians, he doesn't. The author of 1 Timothy calls it scripture and puts it alongside Deuteronomy. And here's the problem. While Corinthians is generally considered by scholars to be authentically written by Paul in the mid-50s AD, very few scholars consider 1 Timothy to be written by Paul. 
and it is generally dated to the late 1st century or even early 2nd century, many decades after Luke was in wide circulation. If he's not calling it scripture, <laughs> that might make, make some sense. But if you're going to call this scripture and then you're comparing it to the other thing which we know at the time is a written scripture, that's reasonable. We agree. First Timothy calls Luke scripture because it had already been written, which makes perfect sense if you agree with the vast majority of Christian scholars who acknowledge 1 Timothy as a late forgery. If I may once again call on Wallace's own words. I stand on the, sh on the shoulders of people who really know something, okay? I'm just a cold case mm -hmm. detective. Except when standing on the shoulders of people who really know something contradicts your case. Then you're just going to ignore the experts, conflate two passages, and hope that your jury doesn't notice your sleight of hand. Or that someone like me will come along and actually cross-examine your evidence. No wonder you won't say my name. Now, say my name. They will, I've never lost a case. You lost today, kid. That doesn't mean you have to like it. The great Jay Warner Wallace, ladies and gentlemen. I guess greatness is in the eye of the beholder. At least Frank Turek is a fan. If you want to see more of my examination of the Cold Case Detective, tap on the Apologia versus J. Warner Wallace playlist on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.